at you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 18. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 576. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through the book of Psalms, and we've come to Psalm 18 this morning. And I want to encourage you today to keep your Bible open in front of you. If you don't, I promise you, you will get lost very quickly in the sermon. I would also encourage you, if you have a pen or something to write with, to keep it handy. There are gems of phrases and verses throughout Psalm 18 that you're going to want to underline or mark or highlight and call attention to because you're going to want to go back and revisit some of these verses this morning. And you'll also find in a few of the lines that some of the verses of Psalm 18 have been taken over the years and turned into songs. And there are some old hymns and songs that have been sung in churches throughout church history as a result of Psalm 18. So hopefully I have your interests pricked as we study this wonderful psalm together. And I'm going to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, Leap Over a Wall. Now, if you're familiar with Psalm 18, you know there's 50 verses. And so I'm not going to read all 50 verses of the text like I normally do at the beginning of the sermon. We're going to read verses 20 to 29 together. So if you'll find verse 20. And this is what the Word of God says. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, and according to the cleanness of my hands he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful, and with the blameless man you show yourself blameless. And with the purified you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp, and the Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. In the introduction to her classic book, Hind's Feet on High Places, Hannah Hernard writes, Perhaps the Lord will use this work to speak comfort to some of his loved ones who are finding themselves forced to keep company with sorrow and suffering or who walk in darkness and have no light, or feel themselves tossed with tempest and not comforted. It may help them to understand a new meaning in what is happening, for the experiences through which they are passing are all part of the wonderful process by which the Lord is making real in their lives the same experience which made David cry out exultantly in Psalm 1833, He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. This psalm inspired her in writing that classic work. 
Psalm 18 is a magnificent psalm, but it is a much neglected psalm. With 50 verses, it is the fourth largest psalm in the Psalter. This psalm is often referred to as a royal psalm, a song of rejoicing concerning the king. And the lengthy superscription at the beginning of the psalm, before verse 1, tells us that David is the author, and that as the servant of the Lord, he addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. This psalm was a psalm of thanksgiving, and it was recorded after the death of Saul, and it appears in 2 Samuel chapter 22, and it speaks of a definitive time when David's kingdom was established and Saul's hostility had ended. Furthermore, because David addressed this psalm to the choir master, it became a hymn for singing in public worship. In this psalm, David is looking back over his life and he's reflecting. He's reflecting on a life that was filled with danger and conflict and war. And as he remembers all that he has experienced, he praises and worships God for the victories that he has won. For it is God who gave his servant king strength to leap over a wall in the midst of battle and reign victorious. But as you study this psalm, it will become clear that David is not just writing about his victories. The language of Psalm 18 is prophetic, and it looks beyond David to the son of David, God's final anointed king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this psalm, we celebrate David's deliverance, and we look forward to the time when we will celebrate our deliverance with the son of David forever. So if you have your Bible open with me, we'll begin by looking first of all at David's refuge in verses 1 through 6. David begins this psalm with praise and prayer. And in verse 1, he declares, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And the word love that he uses there describes a deep feeling of compassion and tender affection. And it usually refers to the Lord's compassion and tender affection for his people. And David is saying at the outset of this psalm that he truly, genuinely, and devotedly loves his Lord. And he views God as the very strength of his life. And in verse number 2, David uses military language to describe the confidence that he has in the strength of God. Look at verse 2. He writes, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And he uses nine different descriptions in verse 2 alone. To describe the confidence that he has in God. He says that he is a rock. It speaks of a foundation of strength and stability. And it finds its roots in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He speaks of God as his fortress. A high place of refuge and a place of defense while he's under attack. He speaks of God as his deliverer, a savior in the days 
of evil that have surrounded him. He speaks of the Lord as his God, his commander, the object of his worship and devotion. He uses the rock, the word rock again, and it's a different word than above, and it means that God is his strong defense. He is his defender in battle. The Lord is David's refuge. He is David's place of security and rest. The Lord is his shield, a place of heavy armor to deflect all of the enemy's arrows and swords. He is David's horn of salvation, a picture of power and victory in battle. And he is David's stronghold, which speaks of God's care for his servant and his king. And I want you to see with these nine descriptions in verse number two that there is nowhere else in the Psalter where so many words are used to describe God in one central place. And what David is teaching us through verses one and two is that Yahweh, the Lord that David is praising at the outset of this psalm, is more than you and I could ever think And he is more than you and I could ever imagine. And you'll notice in verse number two, the personal pronoun my. It is repeated before each of these nine descriptions. David is not speaking in theory this morning. He is not just theologizing in verses one and two. And David is speaking out of personal experience in his life. And the implication of verses 1 and 2 is that these feelings of love for the Lord are not something that David stirred up and whipped into an emotional frenzy. These feelings and these descriptions that David is offering up in praise to God come from his experience. They come from an active, present experience of the Lord being on David's side at his right hand through all of the realities of his daily life, the highs and the lows, the mountaintops and the valleys. This Lord, this Yahweh, this covenant-keeping God is personal to David. And David has found in him a refuge. John Calvin says of verses 1 and 2 that David furnishes the faithful with a complete suit of armor that they may feel that they are in no danger of ever being wounded. God is his refuge. And then in verses 3 to 6, David gives testimony to the truths that he's just proclaimed in verses 1 and 2. Look at those verses. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. The Bible will teach us in its history books that for months, David had survived in the rocks and caves of rugged mountains while Saul and his enemies surrounded him and were hunting down his life. And in this dangerous season, David experienced the protection and the faithfulness of a God whom he says in verse 3 is worthy of his praise and worthy of his love and worthy of his worship. And during this chapter of his life, David pictures himself in verses 4 and 5 
as a man who is in complete distress. And the word distress that he uses in these verses is a very strong and picturesque word. It means to be in the straits. It means to be restricted and cramped in under pressure. It means to be in a tight place or in a corner or hemmed in. And this word gives you the picture. Can't you just see him? Of David hiding out in the rocks and in the crevices of those boulders. Looking for refuge and safety and protection. And in the midst of hiding in these rocks, he says God is really his rock in the midst of his distress. And in verses 4 and 5, David uses four parallel lines. Do you see it? To describe the danger that he felt. He says the cords of death surrounded him as if he were tied down and unable to escape. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed him as if he were drowning. And the cords of the grave entangled him and the snares of death would not let him go. And David felt that he was caught in a trap. He was bound with cords and he was left alone to die. And in this harrowing situation, David in verse 3 called upon the Lord. And in verse 6, he cried out to his God for help. David learned what you and I must be reminded of on a continual basis. That God was only his only refuge and hope in the midst of his distress and in the midst of impending death. And David was confident, he was absolutely confident that his prayers would reach the ears of his Lord. And that's why he says at the end of verse 6, that from his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. And like David, friends, the God we love, the God who is worthy of our praise, the God who is worthy of our songs, the God who is worthy of our worship, hears our prayers, he answers us, and he delivers us from all of our distresses. And he will deliver us through his son even in death. And so I ask you this morning, is God your love? Is he the strength of your life? Do you begin your days the way David began this psalm? I love you, Lord. You're the strength of my life. My life is laid out before you. I love you. You say, oh, pastor, I'm a rugged guy. I can't talk to God like that. Well, God talks to you like that. Do you think God's not rugged? Do you think God's not strong? No, friends, it's the language of relationship through Christ. It's the language of the Bible. God loves you, and because He loves you, in return, He makes it possible through His Son for you to love Him. And so why wouldn't you say to Him, I love you, Lord. You're the strength of my life. My life is laid out before you. It belongs to you, God. You're my rock. You're my refuge. You're my strength. And friends, while these first six verses describe David's life, they find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And the writer of Hebrews tells us Jesus prayed and God heard his son and God saved him from the greatest enemy of all, the enemy of death. 
And because Jesus has defeated death, if you and I know Christ, you and I no longer have to fear death or fear any of the distresses of life because Christ, if we know him, is our strength. He's our love. He's our deliverer. He's the horn of our salvation, and he is our rock. And so I ask you this morning, dear friend, do you have confidence in the God of the Bible like David does? Do you have confidence in this Lord that we have come to worship this morning the way David expresses in the first six verses of this psalm? Well, we not only see David's refuge, secondly, we see David's rescue in verses 7 to 19. And in these verses, David describes his deliverance in the form of a theophany, which is just a fancy theological word to describe the awesome display of God's presence and God's power. And in verses 7 to 19, you will see a picturesque and striking description of God's presence and God's power. These verses are very similar to what you will find in Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, in Jonah's prayer from the belly of the great fish. And they are also similar to what you will find in Matthew chapter 27, as Matthew describes God the Father in his activities as God the Son dies on the cross. In verses 7 and 8, David says that the Lord burst onto the scene like an earthquake and an erupting volcano. And look at how he describes the Lord's activity in verses 7 and 8. The earth reeled and rocked, and the mountains trembled and they quaked, and the smoke and fire of God's judgment were on display as he began to work on David's behalf and overturn David's circumstances. Alan Ross, in his commentary, describes verses 7 and 8 this way. He said, these are symbols of divine wrath being breathed out. And the language of a volcanic eruption is reminiscent of how God dealt with Sodom. That's the picture in verses 7 and 8. It is also the picture of what we see towards the end of Matthew chapter 27 when Jesus cries out, it is finished, and breathes his last breath on the cross. And in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51, Matthew writes, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And listen, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. It's the same language of verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 18. And then in verses 9 to 12, David says that God parted the heavens and that he came down in wrathful vengeance to deal with David's enemies. That God was attended by the cherubim and he descended from heaven to answer David's prayer like a thunderous, violent thunderstorm with dark rain clouds and hailstones and bolts of lightning. One commentator described the scene, this is how the divine warrior announces his coming to those who have abused and rejected his king. This is how God responds on behalf of his people. Spurgeon said, suddenly the terrible artillery of heaven was discharged against David's enemies. Moreover, in verses 13 to 15, this barrage of artillery continues as all the effects of God's actions are felt throughout the earth. Look at these verses. Verse 13, the Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice 
hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. And he flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world. Do you see it? The foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. This is an overwhelming display of God's power in these verses. And friends, it is reminiscent of the language and the activity of God as He freed His people from slavery in Egypt and as He parted the Red Sea and as He descended on Mount Sinai and gave His people the law. And what David is describing in all of these verses is an Exodus-like experience. That God, just the way He worked in the Exodus, has now come on His behalf and worked in this overwhelming and powerful way. Alec Moter, who is an excellent Old Testament scholar, says, In other words, He draws our attention to these mighty acts from the past so that we too may know that every awesomeness Every mightiness we see in the created world around us is but a reflection of the power of our God to save. Listen to what he says. What majesty of action, what omnipotence of intervention, what irresistible salvation. This God is our God forever and ever. Oh, don't you see that, friends? Your God whom you've sung to this morning, is mighty to save. All of creation does His bidding. With one word from His mouth, the whole world and its foundations lay bare before Him. This is the God in whose presence we are in this morning. This Lord, this power. And then in verses 16 to 19, David records God's rescue. Look at these verses, they're so rich. He sent from on high, and He took me, and He drew me out of many waters, and He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me, and they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support, and He brought me out into a broad place, and He rescued me because He delighted in me. In this divine intervention, David says in verse 16 that God reached down and God took hold of David in order to deliver him from these deep waters where he felt he was drowning. It's so personal, God's activity on behalf of his servant. And then in verses 17 to 19, God rescued David from his enemies who hated him and were too strong for him. And the Lord supported him through all of his calamity and he brought him out of his confinement, out of that narrow place of distress, and he led him into a broad place. And you'll notice in the language of these verses that this deliverance was all of God. God took him in verse 16. God drew him out in verse 16. God rescued him in verse 17. God supported him in verse 18. God brought him into a spacious place in verse 19. And then at the end of verse 19, you'll notice why God did all of this for David. Do you see it? This is a verse to underline. He delighted in me. It means to be mindful of him, to be attentive to him, to have pleasure in him. This is the confidence that David had of his God. 
that in the midst of all of this distress, he could say, God has come and worked this victory on my behalf because he takes pleasure in me. He delights in me. And with the ending of this section, we see once again that ultimately this psalm can only point to Jesus Christ. Because though God delighted in David, he delighted in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, even more. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17 at Jesus' baptism, Matthew records, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Both of these texts, friends, ultimately refer to Jesus Christ because God delights in him like no other. And David is merely a foreshadow of the delight that God has in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because God delights in his son, Jesus Christ, and because God delights in his work, God delights in those who come to his son for their salvation. Because Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 says that out of God's infinite love, He predestines a people for himself as adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And according to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it was Jesus' delight in those whom he would die for that helped him endure the cross and despise the shame and defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave. And so I ask you this morning, with this kind of love and affection displayed for you, How could you not turn to Christ and trust in him for your salvation? How could you not unite your life to Christ so that when God looks at you, he sees delight and pleasure in you because of what his son has done for you in rescuing you from your sins? Well, we not only see David's refuge and David's rescue. In verses 20 to 29, we see David's reward. As he begins this section in verses 20 to 24, you will notice that David uses the, re- the word rewarded twice to describe how the Lord dealt with him. And he says in verses 20 to 24 that the Lord re- rewarded David according to his righteousness. Because David walked in cleanness, he refrained from evil, he kept God's law, and he was blameless. And Dale Ralph Davis, once again, helps us understand the language that is being used in these verses. And David is not describing sinlessness. He's describing a life of blamelessness. And this is what Dale Ralph Davis says. These are not boasts of self-righteousness, but professions of loyalty and of overall obedience. He is not claiming sinlessness, but denying apostasy. He is not tooting some sort of moral perfection, but affirming that he lives under and in obedience to Yahweh's word. And because he has walked in obedience to Yahweh's word and has not turned from him, he praises Yahweh for in turn showing faithfulness to him. And David is describing himself in verses 20 to 24 as a man who walks with God. As a man who is obedient to God. As a man who worships God and loves God and serves God. And then in verses 25 to 29, David describes the character 
in the conduct of the God who rescues and rewards him. Look at these verses. These are verses to underline, by the way. Look at verse 25. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. And with the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. And with the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp, and the Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. And David reminds us in verses 25 and 26 that God rewards man according to his character. That those who are faithful to God, the Lord in turn will be faithful to them. And likewise, God shows himself to be blameless and pure to those who show themselves to be blameless and pure before God. But you'll notice the contrast in verses 25 and 6. That those who are crooked and twisted and devious and perverse, God makes himself seem tortuous to them. It, it literally means that God outwits the crooked. And he uses their own perverse and twisted and devious crooked ways against them. And what David is teaching us is that if a person insists on pursuing their sin and their devious, crooked ways, God will reward them, giving them what they deserve. There's a New Testament example of this principle in these verses that David is articulating. You'll be familiar with the words. It's a common phrase even in our culture. They're found in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, where Paul says this warning. Do not be deceived. Do you hear how he begins? Do not be deceived. Why does he say that? Because many people are deceived. And what are they deceived about? The principle that he is getting ready to lay down. And what is that principle? It's the same principle of verses 25 and 26 in Psalm 18. Here's how Paul says it. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You reap what you sow. You sow crooked ways. You reap the result of those crooked ways. You sow good seed. You reap the fruit of good seed. This is David's point in verses 25 and 26. Then in verse 27, David summarizes God's dealing with the righteous and the crooked, stating that the Lord exalts the humble, but he brings low the haughty. It's the same thing that James said in James chapter 4 and verse 6, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In verses 28 and 29, David testified that in his reward, God caused his life to flourish. David declared that when his life was dark and hopeless, the Lord kept his lamp burning in verse 28. And he showed him reality and he guided him on the right path. And then in verse 29, with the Lord's help, David was able to advance against all of his enemies and even leap over a wall in a battle. And it's a reminder that God alone gives his people victory over their enemies and over darkness. And this is what David is showing us through these verses. That God is the rewarder of his people. That God is not only the refuge and God not only rescues his people. God rewards his people when they walk with him and follow him. Friends, verses 20 to 24 show us why we must understand this psalm in light of Christ. 
For which one of us in this room this morning would dare describe our lives with the language of verses 20 to 24? There's only one person who could be described by these verses. There's only one person who knew no sin but died for the sins of others and gave us his righteousness so that we could in turn be described by these verses 20 to 24. And that person alone is God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder today, as I continue to show you Christ in this psalm and what he's done for you, why wouldn't you trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation? I also ask you this morning, because the text demands it, have you deceived yourself today thinking that you're never going to experience consequences for your actions? You may be in this room this morning, and you may be living crooked, devious ways. And you're just thinking to yourself, God doesn't care, God doesn't see, doesn't matter to him what I'm doing, doesn't matter to him what I'm thinking. And would you see in the light of Psalm 18 that God knows everything, that nothing can be hidden from him? He knows your every thought. He knows your every move. He knows your every dream. He knows your every action. He knows it all. And would you listen to what Paul said and what David is teaching us in this psalm? God is not mocked and God is not deceived. So don't deceive yourself, friends. You will reap what you sow. You put bad seed into your life and you are going to reap the consequences of that bad seed. And so I say to you this morning, if you're a Christian and you're playing fast and loose with crooked ways to turn from them, before the consequences come raining down all around your life. Well, we not only see David's refuge, David's rescue, and David's reward. In verses 30 to 45, we see David's reign. The God who is David's strength gives him strength to reign in victory. Now, I want you to notice how David begins this section of the psalm in verse 30. He gives testimony to the ways of God and to the word of God. And this is another one of those verses that is worthy of underlining and highlighting. Look at verse 30. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. And David is teaching us that God's presence and God's word are a powerful combination in the lives of God's people. For the Lord is the one who equips us. The Lord is the one who prepares us. And the Lord is the one who brings us victory and help in our battles. And then look at verse 31. Verse 31 affirms this truth. As David rhetorically asks two questions. Who is God but the Lord? The answer, no one. And who is a rock, our source of stability and protection, except our God? The answer, only our God is the rock. And David takes verses 30 and 31 in these monumental truths, and he applies them in verses 32 to 36. And this is what David tells us in verses 32 to 36. That because the Lord was David's rock, because he was David's fortress, his deliverer, his refuge, his shield, his horn of salvation, his stronghold. The Lord equipped David with strength and he made his way blameless in verse 32. 
In verse 33, he enabled David to stand with the speed, the strength, and the stability and security of a deer in the heights. And in verse 34, God trained his hands for war, giving him the necessary skills for battle so that he could bend a bow of bronze. And in verse 35, he gave him the shield of salvation. And in verse 35, he supported him with his mighty, powerful right hand. And in verse 35, he made him great through his gentleness. And in verse 36, God took him out of that tight place and he gave him a wide place to stand in battle. And in verse 36, he kept his feet from stumbling in the midst of the war. Now notice again, friends, in verses 32 to 36, where the activity lies. The emphasis of all of these verses is on God and what God has done for David. And here's the point. Every single thing that David needed for victory, God provided. And every single thing that you and I need for victory, God has provided through His Son, through His Spirit, and through His Word. I love how Eugene Peterson summarized verses 32 to 36. He says, Is not this the God who armed me and then aimed me in the right direction? That's what God does. In the midst of our battles, He arms us and aims us in the right direction. In verses 37 to 38, empowered by divine strength, David pursued all of his enemies and overtook them in verse 37. He didn't stop until all of them were consumed. And in verse 38, he inflicted mortal wounds as every single one of his enemies fell defeated at his feet. And then notice in verses 39 to 42, David says that his victory is really Yahweh's victory. That it is God who has given strength to his servant for battle in verse 39. And it is God who made David's enemies sink under him in verse 39. In verse 30, Yahweh gave, or 40, excuse me, Yahweh gave David their necks and he destroyed them. In verse 41, David's enemies cry for help went unanswered by God. And in verse 42, David took his enemies and he ground them like fine dust and he threw them out like dirt and mud in the streets so that everyone else would trample on them. And when you study verses 39 to 42, the verb sequence in all of these verses, listen, it describes a complete and overwhelming victory. God annihilated David's enemies. It is God alone who sustained David. It is God alone who made David victorious over his enemies. And this is what the Lord has done for those in whom he delights. He brings ultimate, complete, overwhelming victory. Because the battle does not belong to you, friends. The battle does not belong to the enemies of God. The battle belongs to the Lord. And in verses 43 to 45, David describes the battle being over and the victory being won. And having routed his enemies, David is elevated by God to rule over them. And in verse 43, God gave David peace with people. And in verse 43, God gave David a position of political and military superiority as the head of the nations. And in verse 43 and 44, God caused 
all of David's enemies to serve him and obey him. David's God-given triumph was so devastating in verse 44 and 45 that his enemies lost heart and they came trembling before the king. Jared Wilson said the picture is of a conquering king receiving the submission of every single one of his enemies. Now listen to me, church. I don't know what battle is lying ahead of you this, ahead of you this morning. And I don't know what battle you're currently facing, but I do know this. All of us have battles. And I guarantee you that there are battles represented in this room this morning. But here's the real question. Have you realized what David realized? That the battle belongs to the Lord and not you. That there is no rock but our God. That there is no God but Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Psalm 18. Have you realized that in every situation, His ways are absolutely perfect and His words are completely true and His words are always proven true? Have you realized that He is a shield for those who will come to Him for refuge and strength? Have you realized that every single thing you need for victory has been provided to you by God through His Son and through His Spirit and through His Word? And so the real question isn't whether or not you and I will have battles. The real question is whether or not we will depend upon the Lord in the midst of the battles. Whether we'll depend upon Him for our victory. And like the previous sections of this psalm, these victories not only describe King David, they also look forward to the victory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he descends on a white horse in Revelation 19 and utterly decimates the enemies of God. Paul gave us a glimpse of what that victory would look like and how the world would respond to Christ. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he said this, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, did you hear it, friends? Every person will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. In hell. Everyone. Everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so you really have a choice. You'll either bow and confess to him as Lord now and receive his forgiveness and his righteousness and his hope and his cleansing, or one day you will bow and confess that he is Lord and you will be removed from his very presence forever for all eternity. Well, we not only see David's refuge, David's rescue, David's reward, and David's reign. Finally, in verses 46 to 50, we see David's rejoicing. David ends this psalm of royalty with words of praise, with words of worship, as he celebrates all that the Lord his God has done for him. Look at this final section. The Lord lives 
and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. In verse 46, he ends this psalm on a note of doxology and praise, declaring, listen to the words again, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be this God of my salvation. And then in verses 47 to 48, David explains once again how Yahweh has delivered this salvation to him. That God grants and subdues and rescues and exalts and delivers his king in verses 47 and 48. That God defeats peoples and enemies and adversaries and violent men for his king. And all of this is the Lord's doing on behalf of his anointed. And as a result of all of that activity from the Lord and all that he has done for David, David says in verse 49, look at it, that he will praise the Lord among the nations and sing to his name. Now something interesting happens in verse 49. Verse 49 is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15 in verse 9. And Paul quotes it in Romans 15:9 to show that God brought salvation through his son to not only the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And then in the very next two verses of Romans 15, verses 10 and 11, Paul shows that the Jews and the Gentiles rejoice together over this salvation that God has delivered through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the next verse in Romans 15, 12, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah and he announces through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord Jesus Christ's reign over all of the nations. The very thing that David is testifying to in Psalm 18, verse 49. Now, if you stayed with me through all of that, Romans 15, 9, 10, 11, and 12, you realize that there is verse 13 coming after verse 12 in Romans 15. Well, pastor, what does Romans 15, 13 say? I am so glad you stayed with me through all that confusion and asked. This is what it says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Why would he end like that? Because... David's life was filled with war and conflict and battle and tight places full of distress and the danger of death. And your world and my world is filled with all of those same tight places. And David has realized through this psalm and God's activity on his life that God is not only the God of his life, God is not only his deliverer, God is the God of the nations. And that through his son, the ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ will reign and rule over all of the nations. And David says, I will sing to this God. I will sing to Yahweh for this kind of hope. And friends, don't you see? The God of Psalm 18 is the God of 2023. That the God who filled David with hope in his distress and in the, 
and cords of death is the God who fills you and I with hope in the dangers of death and distress. And that's why Romans 15, 13 is so important. This God who rules and reigns over every nation is a God of hope. He is a God of assurance. He is a God of joy. He is a God of peace. And when you know this God like David knew this God, you have this same kind of hope and you have this same kind of peace. And this is what David is experiencing at the end of this psalm. He is experiencing this joy. He is experiencing this peace. And in verse 50, he ends this majestic psalm with assurance and with hope. Exalting the Lord for his salvation and his steadfast love that he's not only shown to David, but that he's shown, look at how verse 50 ends, to all of David's offspring forever. Look at verse 50. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David. And his offspring forever. Some commentators believe that verse 50 was something that the crowds chanted out in public worship. Great salvation this Yahweh brings to his king, to his anointed, and to all of his people. And it's the same cry that you and I would sing, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus Christ is our salvation and great, great salvation he brings not just to the jews but to the gentiles like you and me because he rules and reigns over all of the nations oh john saw a picture of it and in revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 he said then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever and ever and all of the nations will praise this beautiful, glorious, strong, and mighty King. One commentator said, We see in the Psalm's conclusion the gospel story. Another David has come. He has defeated God's enemies and established his reign. And even the Gentiles now come to him. And as a result, a great chorus of praise ascends to the throne of God. Psalm 18 reveals the God who controls nature and history, who establishes his king and his kingdom. This God is not absent, but present, not distant, but near, not aloof, but active, not powerless, but powerful. And in his son, the kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. And light breaks through the darkness and the devil trembles. And yet we await the full dawn. And in hope we live and in hope we pray your kingdom come for great is your salvation that you bring oh friends psalm 18 it speaks comfort and it speaks hope to those as hannah hernard says who are finding themselves forced to keep company with sorrow and suffering or who walk in darkness and have no light or who feel themselves tossed with tempest. For the same God that strengthened David to run like a deer and stand on the heights and leap over a wall is alive. He's alive. And he's active in your life. And in this psalm, we not only celebrate David's deliverance, we look forward to the time when we will celebrate our deliverance 
and our great salvation with our great King forever. Let's pray.